Man, I tell you, what a great morning uh, to worship the Lord and to see baptisms and to see all those wonderful kids' faces as they go out. Not that we don't want them in here, but uh, I, I get the joy of listening to them and their excitement because I sat so close to that door. And so what a thrill it is. So grab your Bible if you will. And as you are grabbing your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 8. I think that's where we're going to be first. Uh, the song we just sang is one of my all-time favorite. And when I was a kid growing up, that was largely the invitational song. And so uh, every Sunday morning, I would hear that song played as a response, asking, encouraging uh, people to come and to respond. And the message of that song is exactly what we want to hear when we're responding, that we can come just as we are accepted, embraced, loved. That is what the Lord extends to us, is an invitation to come to him just as we are. And so we sing songs like that. We sing all kinds of songs. We've sang songs this morning about God's assurance in our life and his gift of salvation in our life. And Have you ever thought about that, though? As we've gathered this morning in this room, 275, 300 of us, why are we sitting here and singing songs together? Sometimes you go to a concert and you may get caught up in the singing and you may have a few thousand people singing the songs along with the band on the stage, but that is never the intention necessarily. You're there to listen. You're there to spectate. You're there to enjoy the talent that's on the stage and your favorite artists and the band that's there. But when you come and gather with the local church, the goal and the intention is not to sit and to spectate. It's to participate. So we sing together. And we sing strange songs together. We sing about blood and death. Not just any death, crucifixion death. We sing about things that we've never seen before, like a resurrection from the dead. I've done hundreds of funerals in my years of ministry. I've yet, yet to see someone stand up out of the coffin and embrace me or say something to me. That freaked me out. <laughs> now, I believe in the resurrection, and so I wouldn't be totally freaked out, but I don't expect that, right? When I'm standing here on this platform and I'm conducting a funeral, that loved one is in that casket and I expect them to stay there until Jesus returns. But we sing about a resurrection and we sing about blood that was shed on our behalf and we sing about a cross and we sing about all of these things that we see in the word of God. We do strange things in the church. This morning, we witnessed five people walk down into a large bathtub. Thankfully, that was warm. And they come before a person like Nate this morning, Pastor Nate, and they stand there before a congregation of people, and some words are said over them, and words are said about them, and then they allow themselves to be partly drowned for a few seconds. Why would you ever do that? Sometimes as a church, we gather in a setting like this, and we will either have plates that we're passing around, or we will have baskets where when you come in the doors, you can pick up those elements. But we call this practice a meal, and yet it's only a little bitty piece of tasteless bread and a thumble of grape juice. We call it a meal. 
And we pass it around and we pray over these things and we celebrate these things. And if you're an outsider who has no concept of the Christian church and the gospel and what the word of God says, you would come into our worship setting and you would see people in the baptistry, that bathtub up there and think, that is the hokiest thing I've ever heard in my life. And I'm not talking about tech. If you came in here and you watched us observe this meal, you would think, is that supposed to fill me up? In fact, you're not even allowing me to take that. And this is weird. Tasteless bread, and maybe in some context, it tastes, the only taste that's there is freezer burn. Right? Sometimes we used to, in the days gone by, we would freeze those little pieces of bread between times when we observed the meal. And it's not even wine, it's grape juice, and it's nearly not enough to fill me up. Why do we do these things? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why do we do the things that we do in the church? An outsider would look at us and say, you are a peculiar people. You know, it reminds me of the young couple that had just gotten married, went off on their honeymoons, and returned, been about a, back in the home and kind of to their new life for about two, three weeks and uh, young, so the wife was not the, she was a good cook, but not a great cook, didn't have a long list of recipes that she could fix, but she wanted to impress and serve her new husband. And so for those first two, three weeks of their marriage, after their honeymoon, she's cooking every single night. Husband comes home from work all day. He's there. He's met with a hot meal. Can I get an amen, men? I'm getting myself in some trouble right now, but, uh, you know, throw the tomatoes later. She's trying to impress her husband, and so, you know, he's enjoying it, and as a good husband, he doesn't say if he doesn't, right? He's just going along with it. Praise the Lord, she's, she's making a meal. And so, but after the couple rounds of those recipes that she's got in her, her, uh, her list of uh, things to, to make, he just asked her one day, you know, I think she'd baked the ham, and she, he says, babe, man, this ham's awesome. Love it. Thank you for preparing it. Just one question. Why do you cut the end off? Is that what makes it taste so good? And she, wife kind of thinks about it for a second. She's like, you know, I really have no idea why I do that. I just watched my mama growing up, and that's what she did. So the next weekend, her mom and dad came over for dinner, and as she and her mom were in the kitchen and preparing the, the, the meal for that evening, she just asked mom and said, hey, mom, uh, my, you know, my husband asked me the other day why I cut the end of the ham off when I cook it, and the only thing I could tell him is, you do it. And so why... When we were growing up, did you cut the end of the ham off? And she kind of scratched her head and said, you know, I really don't know why I do that either. It's something I watched your grandma do when I was growing up. And so the both of them decided to call grandma at that moment and say, Grandma, here's what's going on. We've realized that we cut the end of the ham off and we don't know why. And it seems to go all the way back to you. Why do you cut the end of the ham off? She says, you girls are funny. I cut the end of the ham off because I couldn't get it into my pan." You see, sometimes we do things and we don't know why we do them just because we saw them. This morning, I want us to look at what we call, what we see in the scriptures as the ordinances in the church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
Here's what we never want to be accused of and guilty of in the church. Doing things just because we saw others do them. We want to do things. We want to believe things. We want to act on things because the Word of God calls us and demonstrates for us these are the things we're to do. So this summer, July and August, we've been in a series that we've simply called in the church. We're talking about the forms and the structures and the responsibilities of the church. And we are looking at nine areas. I mean, there's a plethora of other things that we could talk about. But so far, we've talked about mission. We've talked about membership. We've talked about attendance and discipline and authority and women in the church. And the last Sunday, Pastor Steve talked to us about loving one another in the church. This morning, we're going to talk about ordinances in the church. And next Sunday, Lord willing, we will talk about stewardship in the church and then we'll move into our fall semester, moving back into the Gospel of Luke. So this morning, I want us to talk about ordinances in the church, and this is what we're going to discover. We're going to see that partaking of the church's ordinances, or in the church's ordinances, as believers, we are declaring and remembering Jesus as the source of everlasting life. And we do this with purpose. You see, we don't want to be like that young spouse, a young wife and her mother just doing something because we've seen it done before. We want to know the purpose behind it and then live and act in that purpose. And so this morning, here's what we have. We've got good news. The Bible speaks and answers the question of why do we do baptism? Why do we observe the Lord's Supper? Many times we can be confused over the why because Perhaps we just don't know what the Bible says. In fact, what we see today in American Christianity is there is an ever-growing biblical illiteracy. I hope it's not true in our church. We strive to be a Bible church. We encourage you to read your Bible, to study your Bible, to know your Bible. I hope you don't eat once a week spiritually, and that's from me. If you're eating once a week spiritually from this pulpit, you are malnourished. You need to learn how to feed yourself on a daily basis. And so we encourage that. But by and large, in American Christianity, we're biblically illiterate. We don't have a clue what the Bible says. Another reason we kind of get tripped up on the why of the ordinances is because we come from different denominational backgrounds. Catholicism has a very different look at the Lord's Supper and communion, as we would call it, than we do as evangelicals. And so that also plays Apart. And so, full disclosure here, we're looking at these ordinances. For number one, we call them ordinances rather than sacraments. We're looking at them from a biblical, well, a Baptistic biblical perspective. I think the Catholics would argue that they're looking at it biblically as well, and that's where we would argue a little bit. In Christian love, of course. But um, we call them ordinances, but here, here's the reason as opposed to sacraments, because they look at it from a sacrament standpoint, saying that you receive grace from the seven sacraments. We would say there's two ordinances in the church, Lord's Supper and baptism, and they reflect grace that you've already received in Jesus Christ. That's the difference. Where is the grace dispensed? We believe it's dispensed upon conversion in faith through Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. They would say it's conferred on you through the sacraments 
that you partake. Sacraments like um, baptism and confirmation, the Eucharist, which is what we call the Lord's Supper, penance, anointing of the sick, matrimony, and then holy order. So today I want us to look at two questions. Why do we practice baptism? Why do we observe the Lord's Supper? Let's begin with baptism. Here's what I want you to see. Through baptism, believers declare their identity with Christ and his church to the world. You know the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. Jesus says there in verse 18, All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You see, when we think about baptism, when we try to answer this question of why, here's what we need to know. We baptize new believers in Christ because Jesus was baptized. We follow the model of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But also in addition to that, we baptize because we were commanded to baptize others who believed on the gospel. That's what Jesus says there in Matthew 28. We're to go to all the nations, making disciples and baptizing them. So what then is the purpose behind it? Why did Jesus establish this ordinance? You've got your copy of God's word there in Acts chapter 8. Let's read Verses 36 through 38. Now, let me set up what's going on here. This is Philip, who is one of the seven who was chosen to serve the body of Christ in a deacon-type role. And because of the persecution broke out through the stoning and killing of Stephen, now the church is dispersed, and Philip has found himself in Samaria amongst those hated Samaritans, and rather than hating them, he's preaching the gospel to them. And they're responding in faith to the gospel message. And then God comes and says, get up and go to a desert road, a place you do not know, and there on that road, he comes across an Ethiopian eunuch traveling back to Africa from Jerusalem, reading a copy of the book of Isaiah, and there in Isaiah 53, most likely, Philip preaches the gospel to him. So look with me, verse 36. It says, as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch, the Ethiopian, said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, Probably in your Bible, verse 37 is in the footnote. The reason it's in the footnote is because it's not in the earliest manuscripts, meaning it probably was a later edition. So as you read this, and I'm going to read it here in just a moment, understand that because it's not in the first early manuscripts, I would say it's not Holy Scripture. But you read the rest of the New Testament, the sentiment is New Testament. Look at what it says, or listen Verse 37, and Philip says, if you believe with all of your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Then verse 38 goes on. And commanded, that's some, the eunuch, the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. You flip over a page or two to chapter 10. And here we come across the story of Cornelius. Cornelius is a Roman centurion, a commander of soldiers, and he is a seeker. He is being drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's visited in a vision that he should send for Peter. And so he sends some soldiers to Peter, and Peter comes and shares the gospel 
with Cornelius and his household. And look what we see in verse 47 and 48. Here's a man who has professed faith in Jesus. He's believed on him. And it, Peter says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain some days and he taught them the word of God further. So in both cases, both Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius, both of these men and those with them could, think about this, could have kept their faith secret. What does baptism do? It makes your faith public. You see, when we're in India and we're sharing the gospel or other places around the globe, it is a big deal to be baptized. This morning, these five people who were baptized, it was a big deal for them. But the difference between their baptism this morning and the baptism that we, baptisms we were a part of last October in, in, in South Asia is that they're among friends. You, you get what I'm driving at? No one in this room this morning is here thinking, well, I'm putting their name on a list we know that who they stand for. We know what they now are walking away from. We're not doing that. This morning, we've gathered in this room, and publicly, we're professing. We believe in them, and we are encouraging their faith, and we're, we're admonishing. We're fanning the flame of their new faith. But in other places around the world, and in the days of the New Testament, when you profess faith through baptism, you are stepping out into some dangerous territory. Here's what you're doing. You're turning your back on your old way of life, sometimes family and friends and a way of living, and you've turned to a new way of life, that of following the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in a secret way, but in an out front, in your face, public manner. That's what's happening in baptism. So here are these two men. Here are their families. Here are the people around them. And they're professing faith in Jesus Christ and doing it not in a secret way, but in a very public manner. Why do they do that? It's because Christianity is a confessional public faith. It's the nature of our faith. It's confessional. Think about when Jesus was baptized. What happened in that moment there in Matthew chapter 3? The heavens opened up and the Father confessed, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. So we have a confessional faith, even as the Father confesses over the Son. So in baptism, we are confessing. We are with Jesus. We're going public with Jesus, and we don't care what anyone else says about it. Baptism, we testify to the world that we're followers of Jesus Christ. It is a public expression of our unwavering faith in him. Let me share with you four things that we need to understand about baptism this morning. First of all, let's talk about the mode of baptism, because there's a lot of question about that, the mode, the, the, the way a person is baptized, because if you go and look at different denominations, we probably will practice it a little different. Catholics are going to sprinkle babies. They're going to pour water over their head, and so are other mainline denominations. Others, upon a profession, a confession of faith in Jesus, they will sprinkle them. We, as you saw this morning, practice Baptism by immersion. We place the person under the water. 
You think, man, it'd be a whole lot easier if you just poured some water over their head, if you just kind of splashed it up on them. They wouldn't have to change clothes. They wouldn't have to bring a hair dryer. They wouldn't have to do much at all. In fact, we didn't even have to have a baptistry. We could just bring them up here and kind of fan water in their face and call that baptism. Why do we do what we do? It's because we're trying to be as biblical as possible. You see, the word baptism or baptize, I should say, in the New Testament is the Greek word baptizo. And it literally means to place under, to be immersed, to submerge under the water. So when you think about the word itself, and then you think about the picture in which we see baptism taking place in the New Testament, and it's always under the water. What did Jesus do when John the Baptist baptized him? He went down into the Jordan River and was placed under. Uh, Last year, some of us went to Israel and we had the opportunity to go down into the Jordan River, and I baptized several people ceremonially right there in the Jordan River like Jesus would have been baptized. Look at the practice of the New Testament church. They were baptizing what we see in the New Testament, people by immersion. So the mode of baptism is immersion. Second thing we need to know is about the symbolism of baptism. The theological symbolism of immersion, as well as the elevation or the raising from the water, throbs with the movement of the gospel. You say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean. The submersion of a believer pictures the person's union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So this morning, as Pastor Nate placed those individuals under the water, it is a theological picture of Jesus' death, burial, as well as his his resurrection. Being placed under the water is a picture of what Jesus doing for us, dying and being buried. But did he stay there? No. Neither did those people. They were brought back up from the water. So baptism symbolizes the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when a believer is raised from the water, it pictures this spiritual reality of newness of life in Jesus Christ. Christ. Paul said this in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So Paul right there in Romans chapter 6 verses 3 and 4 lays out what I just mentioned. That we are symbolizing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ when we are baptized, now walking in a newness of life. You see, it goes on even to magnify the symbolism further when it speaks of and portrays our own death, burial, and resurrection. And the cleansing from sin. Think about when Paul was what Saul at the time, and he's just had this encounter with Jesus in Acts chapter 9, and Ananias is sent to him. And Ananias tells him to rise and to be baptized for the washing away of his sins. Now, this morning, as those folks were in the baptistry, were their sins literally washed away? No, not at all. But symbolically, it portrays that the death, burial, and resurrection, the blood of Christ himself has washed them clean as white as snow, right? So there's symbolism there. There's a mode there. Third thing we need to know is the subjects of baptism. Who can be baptized? Read through the New Testament. We see that it consistently records that baptism was reserved only for those who had professed faith 
in Christ. In other words, believers in Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, after Peter had preached the gospel, after the Holy Spirit had come, it says to us in verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized. Those who had believed the gospel that Peter had just preached were baptized. Philip's preaching the gospel there in Samaria. We read in Acts chapter 8, when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. So the subjects of baptism in these examples and all other examples in the New Testament are always those who have heard the gospel, believed the gospel, and professed faith in Jesus Christ through the gospel. So the Subjects of baptism are believers. The candidates for baptisms are those who have faith into Jesus for salvation. We don't get baptized because we want to be saved. We get baptized because we have been saved. And here's where the, the crux is. A lot of times, it happens with adults, but many times it happens with children because they see what we do, this ordinance, and their first statement is, Mama, I want to be baptized, right? And we say, man, that's awesome. We're glad you want to be baptized. What does baptism mean? I love Jesus. Great. Glad you love Jesus. Why do we get baptized? So you've got to work them through the gospel. So it's good to say, I want to be baptized, but if you're just dunked in a bunch of well water from Powhatan, Virginia, the only thing you did was get wet, and you might taste a little bit like metal. Because if you drink out of the water fountain, it's got a little bit of a metal taste. At least to me. I don't know about your taste buds. But I've always thought it tastes a little bit like metal. We have a filter and everything, but it still tastes like metal. Um, now you are going to be like, I ain't drinking water here ever again. <laughs> Bringing my own water. Just put some coffee in that cup. You'll be fine. Um, baptism doesn't take you to heaven. But it does symbolize for those who you have professed faith in Jesus and are on your way to heaven, that you're one of his. Does that make sense? So the candidates for baptism are those who are in faith with Jesus Christ. Now let's talk lastly about the necessity of baptism. And uh, then we're going to move on to the Lord's Supper. The New Testament is clear that baptism is not necessary for salvation. Says, Pastor, you, you just kind of touched on that. Now you're saying it clearly. What do you mean by that? Well, we've talked about it being a symbol, and symbols don't save. Jesus is not a symbol of something greater than himself. Jesus is life, right? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So Jesus literally lived. Jesus literally died. Jesus literally shed his blood. And Jesus was literally buried and was literally raised from the dead. He's not a symbol of something greater. He is God of God, very God of very God. Baptism is different. It is a symbol of what Jesus has done in your life. Here's a case in point. Jesus is on the cross, nailed between two thieves. One of them is heckling and mocking Jesus, and the other one says, remember me in paradise. And Jesus says, today, you'll be with me in paradise. What happened there? On that cross, as one man is dying for his sins, he looks to Jesus, who is literally dying for his sins, and faiths into him. And that, that man, 
who was a thief and deserved the very cross he was dying upon, was forgiven of all sin and was spent eternity in heaven with Jesus, not because he was baptized, but because he expressed faith in the one who has given his life for him. Does that make sense? Was that man ever baptized? Never had the opportunity. He died on the cross that day. You see, if you read your Gospels correctly, Jesus, it, se- he seen, it seems Jesus died first because when they came by to expedite the whole deal, to break the legs of those who were still alive, they did not break the legs of Jesus, meaning Jesus died first. But that man never got off the cross. So you don't have to be baptized to be saved, but it is necessary for us to be baptized. Paul said in Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we clearly see that baptism doesn't save. In fact, no work of you will ever bring salvation in your life. So why then do we need to be baptized? Well, first of all, the answer is pretty simple. Jesus said so, right? I mean, I'll take it to the bank right there. I mean, it's a simple Sunday school answer, but we are baptized because Jesus said so, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. So there's a clear commandment to all of us as believers to do that. So the simple answer, we're baptized because Jesus said to be baptized. But secondly, we're baptized... Because of the testimony that it lays out. Believers in the early church identified publicly with Jesus through baptism. It gives this impression, this idea of cohesion and brotherhood and sisterhood within the body of Christ. And so in doing so, in being baptized, they were declaring, I've left my old ways of living life and have found new life in Jesus Christ. So it's this mark, it's this identification upon which a believer is testifying to the world. I am no longer who I once was, but now I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. That's how Paul would lay it out in 2 Corinthians 5. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Now, does your life look remarkably different? Probably not right now, but you're on a different course. You're on a different heading. I once was living for myself, and I was going in this way. Now I'm living for Jesus Christ, and I'm going this way. Right now, I may not look totally different. I'm still struggling with some of the things I've always struggled with, but I'm walking with Jesus now, and I'm not walking with myself. And so if you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you've never followed the Lord in believer's baptism, you need to be baptized And it can happen any Sunday. So we do it because we're commanded. We do it because Jesus was baptized, the early church baptized. We do it for the identification as a believer is publicly identifying with Jesus and his people. And that church, us, in doing, performing the ordinance of baptism are affirming that the believer gives evidence of saving faith. Welcoming that individual into the family of God. Let's talk about the Lord's Supper. Let's tackle that question this morning. Here's what I want you to see. Through the Lord's Supper, supper, believers remember their identity with Christ and his church. So in baptism, we're declaring, we're declaring, I am with Jesus Christ. It is a first declaration. I am an unapologetic follower of Jesus Christ. In the Lord's Supper, that's a one-time deal. In the Lord's Supper, it's a routinely 
uh, routine meal upon which we are gathering together and remembering. Remembering that we are in Jesus individually and corporately. So let's look at what else Luke has to say. Luke chapter 22, if you will. Jesus is with his disciples. He's in that upper room just before he's going to be um, betrayed by Judas Iscariot. Jesus is observing this Passover meal with his disciples. Verse 19. Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What we see here is that in the Lord's Supper, we testify to ourselves that we are recipients of God's grace through Christ. It's this corporate reflection of our Lord's unwavering commitment to redeem us. We do this in remembrance of him. There's four features that I want to highlight quickly this morning. First of all, let's highlight the idea of remembering. The theological groundwork for the New Testament observance of the Lord's Supper is the Passover meal. That's what Jesus is observing with his disciples there in the upper room. God had commanded his people, if you remember, to remember his saving work back in Exodus. When God was delivering Israel from Egypt, he had the 10 plagues, and the final plague was the death angel who would come. And those who were under the blood of the lamb that was over the doorpost of their house were saved. Do you remember that? If you've ever seen the Ten Commandments with Charleston Heston that comes on once a year on ABC, you've got a portrayal of what that might have looked like. Probably not so accurate, but I have many of my theological ideas, maybe not theological, but the way I view things, uh, I can just see that death angel coming the way they portrayed it there. It was very helpful for me. Fast forward from Exodus through the uh, age of Israel, come to the New Testament, we see that the Passover Seder had morphed into a ceremony that included, in addition to the unleavened bread, the partaking of four cups of wine. And so Jesus filled the ceremony with ultimate redemptive significance when he equated the bread to his body and the wine to his blood. Now, just as the blood of the Passover lamb had shielded God's people from death, the blood of the ultimate Passover lamb would shield his followers from judgment and death. Now, was Jesus there in that room as he observed this meal with his disciples saying to them, when you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you will receive salvation? That's not what he was saying. He said, do this in remembrance of me. What are they supposed to remember? What he was about to do. Jesus, as God the Son, was about to give his life over as a sacrifice. His blood would be shed on the cross so that forgiveness could be given to all of us. That's what we remember. His body was bruised. His blood was shed. That's what we do. We're declaring, or we're remembering, I should say, our identity with Christ that was won, that was purchased through his sacrifice. And so just as the Passover observance was instituted as a memorial of redemption, as the blood above the doorpost stayed the angel of death, the Lord's Supper remembers the blood of Christ on the cross, and that it satisfied the wrath of God the Father. That's 
the memory. The second feature that we want to look at is communion. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. What's Paul saying here? He's literally laying out for us that when we gather together as a church family and we partake of the bread and the wine, we are experiencing koinonia, fellowship, communion. There's something that happens in our midst as we sit here and we reflect on the goodness and the grace of God in our life that we experience communion. That's why we're supposed to do it regularly. Communion. There's something about it. So when we observe this meal, we're doing so as believers, meaning the meal is only for those who are believers, just as baptism is not for those who are outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. The same would be true of Lord's Supper. It's for those who are in communion with Christ and his church. And so when we come together and we reflect and we remember all that Jesus has done for us, there's something special about that moment. A third feature is the gospel. When we observe the Lord's Supper, we testify to ourselves that we are recipients of God's grace through Jesus Christ, but we also are proclaiming the gospel. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, when we take that bread and we take that little thimble of juice and we enjoy that meal together, we're preaching the gospel body of Jesus was bruised and broken for us, that his blood was shed for us. Again, the meal is reserved for those in relationship with Christ, baptized members of his church whose lives are worthy of partaking of the meal. Paul warned the Corinthians in chapter 11 there in 1 Corinthians that if you take this meal, you want to do it in a worthy manner. So we ought to preach the gospel to ourselves in the sense of I'm a follower of Jesus, but I still can stray. And I want to make sure that my sins are confessed and my sins are, are, are covered in the blood and that I'm doing everything possible to walk in obedience to Christ and his commandments when I partake of the Lord's elements in, those, in that moment. Preach the gospel to ourselves. There's a fourth feature that I want us to see this morning, and that is anticipation. If we were to go back in verse 18 of Luke 22, Jesus says, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. You see, as Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he wanted his disciples to know that it was only a preview, only a foretaste of something far greater to come. You know, there's a day coming when those of us who know Jesus as Lord and Savior will sit down at a great feast conquering king pull up chairs and say let's celebrate that's what the meal is it's a celebration of what jesus has won for us on the cross and so as we take of that bread and we take of that juice we are celebrating remembering what jesus has done but there's also this foretaste of what is to come that this life that we live in jesus christ is going to be culminated one day with his return and his victory and sin being vanquished and the enemy being thrown into the lake of fire. And so as we 
take this meal. We're preaching the gospel, and we have an eye to the eastern sky. Anticipation of his return. You see, these ordinances are so much more than just a religious exercise. Well, we're going to baptize today. Here, go live a life. Well, we're going to take this meal. Boy, I'm hungry. I wish I had some more to eat. Could you throw a little bacon on that? You know, it's not just about the elements itself. As far as what they are or are not, it's about what they symbolize and what they're portraying and what we're remembering and what we're thinking about going ahead. It takes us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it help us, helps us to remember that I'm not my own. I'm his. And my life is not my own. It's his. And so now my identity is not my own. And you think about that word identity. That's all the rage these days. How do you identify? What's your deal? So some guys will say, my identity is in my career. I'm this or that. Some people say, no, my identity is in gender or, or, or whatever the, the buzz thing is for this day and age in which we live. Here's what I want us to know as Christians. Our identity is none of those things. My identity is not a man. My identity is not a husband. My identity is not a father. It's not a preacher. It's not a theologian. It's not a hunter or a fisherman. It's none of those things. Though all of those rival to put themselves in the place of my identity. But my identity is Jesus Christ. I am a Christian. I am a Christ follower. And baptism on the outset of your faith journey says, that's where my identity is. Unashamedly, unapologetic, I'm with Jesus. And the Lord's Supper takes us on a routine basis where we get to kind of pull back and sit together with family and say, we're with Jesus. That's my identity. I don't, re I don't identify as a Republican or a Democrat or a, or a third party or, or, a, or whatever else. I am a Christian first. All of those other things, good things, but they're not the best thing. I'm a Christian. I'm a little Christ. Where, where does that term come from? I'm way off my notes at this point. You're, this is all free. <laughs> You already gave anyway, right? Where does that term Christian come from? It came from the church in Antioch, where the lost people, the unregenerate, the non-Christians, looked at those who identified as a follower of Jesus and says, you're a little Christ. You're just a little Jesus running around here. They saw no difference. That ought to be said of us. That ought to be said of us. So the ordinances of the church may seem like just religious stuff. Man, strange stuff. We get together. I mean, not even an ordinance. We get together and we sing songs. Sing songs about weird things. Pass these little meals around. It's like it's worse than an airplane food. I mean, it's... <laughs> People get dunked in the water. I mean, I love the pool, but I don't want somebody pushing me down on the water, right? Why do we do these things? It's because they mean something. They symbolize something. They mark something in our lives. What they mark is, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. In this room this morning, some of you cannot say that. You may be able to say, I'm religious, and I go through Christian motions. 
I attend church regularly, I give, I serve, I do. You can say all kinds of things, but some of you cannot say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I have faith into his sacrifice on the cross. I've received his forgiveness in my life. My destiny is heaven one day, not because of my good works, but because of his good work on the cross. Some of you can't say that. And so the invitation this morning that we're about to extend to you is identify with Jesus Christ. May today be the day where you say yes to his gospel, his good news, his death, burial, resurrection that was done for you. Some of you said in this room, you could say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I've never taken that first step of obedience. I've never yet been baptized. What's holding you back? Maybe you're in a different predicament. You're saying, Pastor, I, I, I genuinely wholeheartedly believe that I've surrendered my life to Jesus. I strive to live for him. But I come from a, a, a religious background, a denominational background, where we observe baptism different than you guys do here at Red Lane. What do I need to do? I would say you need to be baptized by immersion. Pastor, that's kind of audacious of you. Why do you think you're right? I just wholeheartedly believe we're right. I'm trying to say it as humbly as possible, right? As clear as the scripture is, I think that wholeheartedly believe that is the mode of baptism. So you need to be baptized. Sprinkling is not good enough. Surely, surely not good enough if it's pre-conversion. Let me give you one story, and I'm going to close up. Gloria's not here, right? Gloria is here? Where is she at? She left, and she's a, well, I'm going to talk about her then. <laughs> I wasn't sure she was going to be here or not. Glory went with us to Puerto Rico. Glory was a member here for, I don't know, 40 years, something like that. Dear, dear, you guys know, most of you know Gloria. Loves the Lord Jesus. But Gloria came to know Christ, uh, I think 27, 28, late, late teen, or late 20s, uh, grew up kind of up in church, but came to know Christ later in her 20s. Had been baptized younger, earlier in life, legitimately came to know Christ in her late 20s, never saw the necessity for baptism later on. Like, you know, I baptized once, I made a profession of faith afterwards, but still it counts. I came, and I pushed on that a little bit. I, I just left it there. I mean, talk about it. We had a few conversations, but I just left it there, just kind of argued. I might have been preaching initially on baptism like I'm doing this morning. I'm not sure how it began. But one day she came to me and she says, Pastor, I think you're right. I think I do need to be baptized. Gloria, what do you mean? Well, you know, I came to know Jesus at this point in my life. I'd already done some religious stuff earlier. But I, now I realize what the Bible teaches, that baptism is post-conversion. always follows a person's profession of faith. And so I need to be baptized. Well, I was excited about that. So we baptized her a few years ago. And uh, she said, here's one condition. I want you to give me the opportunity to speak in, in, from the baptistry. Tell her story. And so I was like, you know, women are supposed to speak in church, but kidding, 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 kidding. You had to be here two weeks ago for that one. Um, I probably did actually joke about that, but, you know, she's not preaching. Um, so she had an opportunity to kind of tell her testimony. It was a great encouragement, I think, for our church and for others. And so uh, if that hits you this morning, if that's where you're at, I would encourage you to be baptized. You say, when can I do that? Any Sunday. I think we're actually scheduled to baptize next Sunday as well. So if you need to know Jesus this morning, 
Here's what I want you to do. Respond to him in faith. If you need to be baptized, let's get that going. This morning you say, I've been sitting here, and maybe I've been sitting here for a while, and I think I need to join this church. Let's begin that conversation. Those are the three things I would ask you to respond to as we sing. So Trevor, if you want to go ahead and come. Let's pray. Stand to your feet. Heavenly Father, honestly, I must confess that coming into this message this morning and the subject of this message, I just must confess, wasn't extremely enticing for me. Knowing we had a full house, I mean, literally a full house, and I just had thoughts go through my mind of, oh gosh, this is such a a mundane subject, a mundane message for this type of crowd. So Father, forgive me for that. It's never mundane. When you deal with the gospel. So we want to thank you this morning for clearly portraying it in baptism and the Lord's Supper. This morning, I pray that your spirit and your word has driven that truth home in our hearts so that those who need a relationship with Jesus Christ feel that call, that tug on their heart. And I pray this morning you'd give them the faith and the boldness to respond. For those, Lord, who need to follow in believers' baptism so they can now observe the Lord's Supper and do all of that in order, May they step out and be willing to take that step. Others in this room need to join our church. I'm grateful for the uh, several who have been going through the Connections class, moving toward membership. Lord, you continue to amaze us with your goodness and your grace. And just pray that that would continue. We as a church family, we as a people of God, might be the little Christ that we're supposed to be all throughout Powhatan and the greater metro area. For your glory and for the good of others. So this invitation, this response time is yours. Have your will in your way. We thank you that we can come just as we are and be received by you. May we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.